Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, my name is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories, and I'm talking to Sean Ryan. Sean is the founder and managing director of China Market Research Group and also the author of the new book, The War for China's Wallet, Profiting from the New World Order. Sean, how are you? It's great to be here, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, I, I like the fact that this starts with slightly technical difficulties. It means that you and I get a chance to talk to each other beforehand and kind of find out who we are, which is always nice. You get to see like my personality before everybody else gets to see it. Anyway, I'm really glad you're here. It's glad. Yeah, it was hard uh, to connect originally because we wanted to record this via Skype, but Skype the last couple of weeks have be- has become very unstable in China and actually been taken out of some of the app stores. So, you know, as you look what's happening, it's getting to be quite difficult for foreign Internet players to exist in China at this stage. China is really creating its own sort of Internet where the Chinese firms are out-competing um, the Western firms, and they're being aided and bedded by sort of draconian Internet laws. Yeah, and to a certain extent, I would make the case that they're actually started to out-innovate as well, and I think we'll get there. But I just wanted to talk about where you're from originally, just to give our listeners some context. Sure. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean Ryan. Um, I'm originally an American, but I've been living in China for most of the last 20 years. Um, so I just turned 42 months ago, and so I've slightly spent more time living on the mainland than I have outside in the United States. Wow. Um, I started this company, CMR, 12 years ago. Um, Basically, we are a market intelligence firm, high-end consulting firm that competes with the McKinsey's and the Bain's of the world. Awesome. The difference, Michael, is that we do all of our own research. Um, We do have a focus on technology, so we help LinkedIn build their China strategy. We helped a lot of investors looking at WeChat um, and other, a lot of the high-tech unicorns in China. Um, So that's sort of my background on the business side. And I also write books. So I've written The End of Cheap China and The End of Copycat China. And now, as you've mentioned, uh, a new book that just came out in December, The War for China's Wallet. So do you want to talk a little bit, just a little bit, because I really want to focus on The War for China's Wallet only because it talks about the New World Order. And I think that that's actually the fascinating point here about China. But can you talk a little bit about your previous book, The End of Copycat China? Sure. Well, let me go a little bit before. My first book was The End of Cheap China. Got it. And in that book, I sort of dispelled the notion that China was based off of low-end manufacturing. I argued in that book that China was going to become the consumer market of the 21st century. And so brands had to focus on selling into China. And as I was researching that book, I started to find that not only were Chinese companies moving up the value chain in, in production, but they were actually starting to innovate. So in 2014, I wrote the book, The End of Copycat China, which was arguing that China was now, at the time, innovating for China specifically. So there were companies like Taobao that were doing a great job in out-competing Amazon on innovation, and that's why you've seen you mm. know, Amazon is basically out of the China market. But I also argued in that book that China was going to become one of the most innovative countries in the world from a technology standpoint. And I got heavily criticized, Michael, because people poo-pooed me. And they said Chinese firms like Alibaba is just a clone of Amazon. Right. Um, but as you've seen in the last year or two, 
you know, China is probably, in my mind, two to three years ahead of Silicon Valley when it comes to innovation. I always feel like I'm going into the dark ages when I visit Australia or the United Kingdom, and I can't use my smartphone for just about anything. Right. Um, China's really focused on innovation on the last year or two. It was, it was really interesting to me. So I was in Shanghai for Huawei Connect 2017. I believe that was at the beginning of September. And we were at the big convention center in Shanghai, right, in Shanghai. And we walked into one of the coffee shops there to get coffee. And, you know, we had some cash with us, which is funny, I guess, for people to see in Shanghai. And the woman in front of us, a very well-spoken, you know, fluent English speaker, Chinese lady, who just turned to us as she was paying for her coffee. You know, she did this sort of head fake thing where she just swiped her phone over this thing and looked at us and said, I bet you can't do this in America. I just thought, and I just thought that was amazing. But, and she's probably true. So sure, there's Apple Pay and stuff like that. But what WeChat has done, from my perspective, and like you said, JD and Taobao and all these other massive Chinese internet companies have done, is just massively, um, I think, out-innovated, particularly, like you said, over the last three or four years. And I don't think that's going to stop. And I think one of the reasons, and you tell me because you've done more research on this than I am, I have, but I think one of the reasons is there's so much greenfields there. And there's so many fewer vested interests. And if the vested interests do exist, I think the ecosystem as a whole does a really good job of removing them and allowing the new thing to come in and take its place. Yeah, two things on that. I think certainly China's taken the lead when it comes to payments. You know, uh, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's something like only 0.4% of transactions in the United States are done on Apple Pay. And, and I bring this up because I was meeting with a big retailer earlier this week who is saying that his headquarters is having problems understanding that they have to accept Alipay or they have to expect WeChat Pay, not just in China, but also globally as Chinese consumers are visiting the United States or France or the UK, and they don't have cash or right, they, don't they don't have credit cards and they no. want to use their Internet payment systems. And this was one of the world's biggest retailers, and he was having problems convincing his headquarters. Now, even last year, I met with the head of China for Starbucks, and they didn't accept WeChat Pay. They wanted to focus on cash. They wanted to focus on credit cards. And there are some other extenuating circumstances. But I said to the president of China, you have to accept WeChat Pay. It's absolutely crazy that you don't, because that's how the consumer wants to spend money. Now, finally, they adopted it this year. But in my mind, they adopted it two, three years too late, right. because if you look at it, at McDonald's, over 50% of transactions now are done through WeChat Pay. So these are two stories of a Fortune 500 retailer and Starbucks, actually in China, not you know customizing to the needs of the or catering to the needs of the Chinese consumer fast enough. Right, and I think we saw this. You know, I'm an old Japan hand, right? So I was obviously late to the China game, but I lived in Japan from 1990 until the end of 2011. And, you know, there was the same idea about Japan in the 70s and in the early 80s. You know, Japan just makes cheap cars, cheap toys, cheap electronics, you know, and then there was the Sony Trinitron and the Japanese just started out innovating. And I think a similar thing is happening in China, right? And the other thing is, you know, before there was frictionless payments, the Japanese started traveling the globe and they wanted to use JCB and they wanted to use their own payment systems to be able to do this. The only difference today is that, as you said, the Chinese getting wealthier and getting wealthier faster as they do travel the world, not just domestically, but internationally, they're also going to want to pay for things the same way they pay for them at home. And that means if they, 
get off a plane in New York and go down to Fifth Avenue or start shopping on Madison Avenue, they're just going to want to walk into a retailer, big and small, by the way, and just pay with Alipay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of parallels with Japan. And so, you know, some people, um, I think, arrogantly say that Chinese can't innovate because of Confucian culture. No way. Or because of the Communist Party. No way. But when I look at it, and in the book I sort of track, it takes 15 to 20 years, maybe 30, for a country to hit rock bottom and be able to mature their industries strong enough before they can start to focus on innovation. So you see, after World War II, Japan was considered a country of copycats, as you mentioned, until the late 70s, early 80s, when the Toyotas and the Sonys of the world became world leaders. Same thing happened in Korea. After the Korean War, it took 30 years or so before the Samsungs and the LGs emerged. And so it was about five years ago that we started seeing the same type of time frame after China grew from the ashes of the Cultural Revolution. So for me, that sort of focus on innovation um, happens when a country is decimated and needs to grow, needs to learn from outsiders, and then they reach the point where they start to go faster than outsiders because there's a pain point within the country. So that was my second point that I wanted to bring up about Alipay and all the payment systems. Go ahead. A lot of the Chinese firms are becoming very innovative now precisely because of the inefficiency of state-owned enterprises. All right. You know, if Bank of China or ICBC Bank were just a little bit better, if China Mobile was a little bit cheaper, because they have some of the highest data plans in the world, really? then Tencent's WeChat or Alibaba's Alipay never would have emerged. But there, you have these sluggish, awful, not consumer-centric state-owned enterprises that are destroying the retail space. And so that's why you have these bright, ambitious, aggressive, and frankly frustrated entrepreneurs like a Pony Ma at Tencent or a yep. Jack Ma at Alibaba create Alipay, because they're trying to get around the system which just doesn't work yeah I, I do think it's really interesting and i spend a lot of time actually talking to you know chinese people in china but also foreigners in china and in a way the foreigners that live in china are so adamant about the innovation that's taking place there and they're almost like standing at the top of a mountain screaming at the top of their lungs trying to convince people outside of china that this is actually taking place and you know, one of the phrases that I like to use about Westerners looking into Asia in general, but into China specifically, is that they don't have enough visibility on what's going on there because they're not there, right? We talk about boots on the ground a lot. And I think for people like you that have been there for 20 years, you know, essentially your entire adult life has been spent in China. You're going to know this better than anybody else. And you can see this sort of radical change that's taken place over the last 20 years. And you can see it accelerating as well, which I find fascinating. Yeah, you need boots on the ground. I mean, when I tell people in the U.S. about the innovation, they poo-poo me. I mean, frankly, uh, my book, End of Copycat China, didn't do as well as End of Cheap China. End of Cheap China still sells better than Copycat. Wow. And I think part of the problem was that the book came out too early. Maybe. Um, you know, three years ago, you know, Silicon Valley looked at me like I was crazy. Um, but now when you start getting the, you know, the VCs and the entrepreneurs coming from there, you start to say, see them say, oh, wait a minute, it's now time for us to copy China um, because China's ecosystem has emerged so fast. And what you're starting to see, and that's part of my new book, The War for China's Wallet, is how the top tech players in China are starting to buy innovation, buy technology, by investing in the United States, by so, investing in Southeast Asia and, right. and into Europe. So you look... 
you know, like a Alibaba has become one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley uh, for non-American companies, rivaling the size of Samsung from South Korea. Right. Can you talk? So, can we talk about the thesis around this book first, and then I want to talk about, you know, Alibaba buying Lazada, right? So, coming into Southeast Asia full force, and then what they're doing in the United States as well, and just how this is changing that that real, like you said, like the war for China's wallet, and what that really means, not just for China itself, but for other regions in the world and for the globe as a whole. So the new book is a little bit more political than my previous two. It's talking about how China is growing its power um, politically by utilizing economic carrots and sticks to reward, cajole, and punish other countries and increasingly companies. Interesting. So, for instance, you know, over the last two, three years, um, what clients ask me has changed. Three years ago, people would come to me and say, Sean, what does the Chinese consumer want to buy? How do they want to buy it? Do they want to buy it via e-commerce? Um, do they want to pay with a credit card? You know, sort of questions like that. But in the last couple of years, retailers have been saying, okay, Sean, what about China-South Korea political relations? Are they going to get better? Or are Chinese consumers so angry at South Korea because South Korea installed sad missile that they'll never go there again as tourists? Because if you look, in April 2017, tour group visits to South Korea dropped 40% year on year. So now retailers are saying, you know what? Rental prices in Myeongdong have dropped 20 to 30%. Should we open up new retail formats out there? Will the tourist dollars still go there? So this book, the first half anyway, is more political looking at how China looks at the Philippines or Thailand so that presidents and country heads or country leaders from these various countries can figure out how to navigate the political relations with China and then how the CEOs of large companies can benefit. So if Ethiopia and China, which is enjoying great relations right now, do well, what does that mean for Ethiopian business? And what does that mean for investors? Well, it means that the airline industry is going to do well. Right. And you see a couple weeks ago, China announced that Ethiopian Airlines is going to have direct flights into China. So that's the first part of the book is really quite political, Michael. The second part is more on the consumer side and going into technology and how companies like Alibaba are spreading their fingers into Southeast Asia um, and becoming more powerful that way. So can we talk about two things? Because you've brought up two really interesting points for me. The first is, I will, I, I'll use the word foray, right? But China's foray into Africa. So Africa is a place that people know very little bit about um, and also pay very little attention to. And I'm sorry if my English language construction is poor there. But there's a whole bunch of things going on in sort of central and east central Africa, which is resource rich and looking for partners to help them, you know, develop and catch up to the rest of the world. And I think Africa, that part of Africa, if not the entire continent of Africa, is going to start growing really rapidly. We can talk about micropayments and, you know, mobile banking and all those other things. But China's actually been at the forefront of helping them develop. Am I, am I missing something there or is that actually true? If I was 20 years old right now, I would probably move to Africa. You would, though, right? Because it's, and it's almost I, like I don't know which country I would... Sorry, Sorry go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I, I think you're right, actually. If I was 20 years old, I would move to Africa. And I don't know what country. You know, I would bounce around. I might spend some time in Ghana. I might go to Nigeria. I'd look around. But to me, the real future um, for entrepreneurship is going to be Africa. It's not now, but I would say, you know, over the next five, ten years a 20-year-old budding 
businessman or woman could go there, look around, and in 10 years when he, he or she is 30, open up a company. Um, because Ch- Africa is bypassing a lot of the technologies in the United States. Like they didn't have broadband. They went straight to mobile. So you have like M-Pesa and banks. They're doing a lot of very interesting things. I've been going to Africa a lot in the last couple of years. That's where I would go. And you're right, China has been at the forefront. And that's what the book is about, because China is investing in infrastructure projects, um, you know, natural resource projects all over Africa to, A, you know, help the economy in China and give opportunities for state-owned enterprises, but also to gain power. Right. Because they're buttressing various despots and various regimes in Africa because they want international coalition support. Um, so China has been very smart at, you know, not necessarily wanting profits, but wanting to have the political recognition and support from African nations. I think that's going to be the hot spot. I mean, I'm 40 years old now. You know, China is still booming. There's still a lot of opportunities. But I view China's Internet space going to be controlled by Chinese. And it's going to be controlled either by young entrepreneurs, a lot of females, by the way. They're doing some really cool things. Or it's going to be the Alibaba Tencent of the world that are just investing in everything and controlling. They've almost become a duopoly um, in a very dangerous sense. And if I were actually advising the Chinese government, I would break up some of their power. Right. I mean, if you they look control at... control too much. Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to get too political, but I think we've already gone down that street. So let's keep going. Um, if you look at the amount of internet traffic that goes through you know, Tencent and Alibaba, JD included, you know, it's probably most of the activity that happens in China. And because, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, a lot of the sectors in which they're entering, whether it's payments or insurance or chatting or social are greenfields, they end up owning it and then competing with them, them sorry, excuse me, ends up being quite difficult. Um, and then it's if you... It's impossible. If you're a yeah. startup, you have to get money from one of these two companies. Right. Uh, I think Tencent's better. They're not quite as predatory. Alibaba's quite predatory right now. You can't go a day without spending money on one of their two platforms, and they have so much data on you, it's quite dangerous. Yeah, and again, I would make the case that it's not that different, and you again, you've probably done more research than I have, but you know, they're also building a back-end business too, right? So they're trying to mimic the AWS business to a certain extent. Everybody wants to build that their cloud instances, because that's where all the data is going to live, right? So Amazon's been very successful. Bezos has been very successful in a way being quite predatory um, too. And I think that the learnings from that are if you can control the entire stack, and I look at the stack sort of horizontally, right? But if you can control that entire platform, you end up with quite a bit of power. And that power, like you said, is very concentrated and could end up being quite dangerous. It's not that, di- in the United States, it's slightly different, but not that different from a sort of internet perspective, yeah? The, the difference is that Alibaba and Tencent really control everything. Fair and enough. so much is digitized in China. So Amazon doesn't have the same control over, like, video right. and payments. So, like, I mean, you wake up in the morning, you know, you communicate with your friends, you then go buy something, you take a shared taxi or, uh, or, or drive, you then take an electronic, not electronic, you take a shared bike, you pay for something to eat, you know, you watch a movie, you buy the movie tickets on your phone. So that basically is all done with one of those two players. Right. So the amount of info they have on you and geolocation info um, on a minute-by-minute basis scares the heck out of me, frankly. And it's something that they're using to sort of rival over retailers. Right. They're basically saying to, you know, the Uniqlo's, the Zars of the world, 
you have access to our platforms, but you have to do everything we say. Right. So you have <laughs> and to. And then you get all the data. But if you don't do what we want, like discount, then you're off our platform. Yeah, I mean, maybe the optimist in me sees what Microsoft was trying to do in the 90s and early 2000s and just thinks that at some point people get really tired of the hegemony of one company or two companies and just as a matter of course, just say, you know what, I'll build my own with my friends or whatever. I, I know it's not that simple, but just try to deal with other providers. I do think it's really interesting, though, to watch companies like Mobike and also DD, you know, in the sort of transportation space. They're also gathering a lot of geolocation data, right? Like if you look at the bicycles, it's a really interesting business. I don't know if you've done a lot of work on that as well. I presume you have. But I just I watch the bicycle space in China in particular. Just because a lot of people are riding them around and they're in multiple cities and so many people are using them and then they're going to go global. Just all the data you can gather from a bicycle is just different, I think, than the data you can gather from a moving vehicle. Yeah, it's scary to me. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little um, bit scary. I think the government supports it because, you know, Alibaba and, those, and their ilk, you know, paid heed to what the government wants and the government likes to see what everyone's doing. Um, so it, it's, you know, the government is supportive of it right now. But at what point do they say that these private Chinese companies have more data than the government itself? Um, and I actually trust the government more than I trust private Chinese companies. <laughs> but, but that's an actually really interesting comment as well, right? In the sense that, I, like I said, I talk to a lot of foreigners in China and Chinese people as well. And a lot of them say that they do trust the government in most cases, not in all cases, right? Because it is a government, but in most cases to kind of do the right thing of building out the country and guiding sort of nascent industries in the right direction. And maybe they missed something with um, Alibaba and Tencent in the sense that they do control a lot of the digital transactions. But if you look at, you know, banking and insurance and other, and education, if you look at what HTC Vive is doing in the education space with their VR stuff, a lot of interesting things going on that are separate to those companies. It'll be, it'll be interesting for me to see how those, how big they get and whether they can compete with the sort of, like you said, the duopoly that already exists. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm not overly optimistic in the next year or two, but I think, as you know, you know, when companies go up, they can always come down. So yeah. eventually, at some point, somehow, somewhere, somebody's going to create the next cool service or app or product that, you know, you don't necessarily have to use those two. The only difference, though, is will the government allow it? Because right. so much, there's so much um, protectionism by the government because they like to work with these big players who will pay heed politically to the masters um so they might you know make it difficult from a regulatory standpoint for new entrants yeah it's going to be interesting for me to see how that plays out as well you mentioned earlier and it's hard for me to make a case that's different than this but the chinese market does seem to be very very domestic in other words i do think it's going to be very difficult and you saw google pull out years ago right but for big non-Chinese, I won't even say U.S., but sort of non-Chinese internet-style companies and digital companies to come in and compete because, again, it's just, it, it almost feels like that decision's already been made. But the other interesting thing that's happening, which you mentioned as well, is that big Chinese companies like Alibaba, like JD, are starting to invest earlier than U.S. companies, for sure, in Southeast Asia. I'm in Bangkok, right? So I see this happening on a day-to-day -day basis, and I see the impact of it happening as well. We can spend a little bit of time on, you know, you watch the you watch the Rocket Internet team build Lazada, they build Zalora, which was end up end up being sold to the Central Group. But Lazada is a really interesting case study for me because 
the final investment round where people like Tesco and other companies invested in was at a, like a $3 billion valuation. And a big deal was made when Alibaba came in and paid a billion dollars for it just because it sounded like a lot of money. But what it really meant was a lot of people lost a lot of money because it was down two-thirds from its highest value. Um, I'm curious what you think of the impact of Chinese companies in Southeast Asia is going to be going forward. Big. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a couple answers to that. So in the new book, The War for China's Wall, at, yep. at the end of each chapter, I interview one big executive. So in this one, I interviewed the president of JD International, Winston Chang, right. to talk about what they're looking at. And so, you know, for someone like him and JD, they're looking at replicating the e-commerce model in China into Southeast Asia. So they're very interested in selling to Indonesian consumers or bringing products from Indonesia into the China market. So you're going to see tons of investments. If you go anywhere in Vietnam, you see advertisements for Vivo or Oppo or any of these mm. sort of Chinese Internet players because yes. they're trying to sell to the, the, middle, the emerging middle class in Southeast Asia. But what I also think is going to happen, um, and, and I touch upon this in the book, is a lot of Chinese firms are investing not just for the market, but they're investing for the technology. Um, and you're seeing some cool budding type of startups in Vietnam um, that if I were, you know, an entrepreneur um, in that space, I would set something up in Vietnam, almost copycatting the Chinese, and then a year or two from now sell to a Chinese Internet player. There's going to be a lot of money made doing that um, in, in the coming years. And why do you think... Why do you think that that's so true for the Vietnamese market? It's interesting to me because I think Vietnam as well is also a very domestic market, right? So not a lot of um, businesses get built there that then look outward, right? And I think part of the reason why is yeah, GDP I think per capita. Is, I think part of the reason why is because GDP per capita is low, but also because it's just it's about three or four years behind the development of the rest of the region. I'm curious what you think. I think part of it's language, part of it is political, you know, it's still a communist country, part of it is these companies have such a strong um, population that's growing under the age of 30 that internet players or any players really have focused on the domestic market. It's cheaper and it's easier to build and there's enough low-hanging fruit there. And so what's going to happen is I think it would be hard for a Chinese internet player to command Vietnam, it's going to be a domestic player and then the Chinese can buy in the same way that it was difficult for foreign players to grow into China. So they either had to buy something or they just died. And hopefully the Chinese players won't make the same mistake in Vietnam that the Amazons of the world did when they first came into China by buying Joyo and then destroying the company, <laughs> or eBay buying EachNet and then destroying the company. Um, we'll see if the Chinese are savvy enough not to make the same mistakes that the Americans made in the you know the past 20 years. Can you talk a little bit about what you think those mistakes were from your perspective? If you you seem to have had an eagle's eye view on what those things were. I'm just curious what they were and how they cannot get replicated when the Chinese come into Southeast Asia. Well, it, that's a tough question, but I think the key is you need to get people on the ground to run your China operations who understand the local market can move fast and perhaps most importantly have the credibility with headquarters to be able to make decisions fast. Right. Um, and that, that was one of the problems. Like eBay, when they bought EachNet, EachNet was as big if not bigger than Taobao. But they sent over, they, they sort of like handcuffed 
Shaoi Bois and the rest of the local player team that knew what they were doing and said, no, we're going to do it the eBay way. Um, and it's good to keep your global brand. It's good to keep your global operation standards. But at some point, you have to localize. Um, you know, they made the eBay new website in China look like the one in America, which is something that Chinese didn't like. They also made all the hosting move from China to the United States, which was a mistake because access speeds then lag. dropped 80%. Yeah, and lag. literally overnight, it was too hard for people to get on the website, so their numbers dropped. I think it was over 50% is what the Ethernet guys told me. Wow. Um, so it's, there's a lot of different issues. You know, Amazon made the same mistakes. You know, they had good players at Joyo, but they didn't let – they hamstrung the Joyo heads, um, so they weren't able to make the right decisions. It's too much – I find it happens a lot with number one players globally. Whenever they come to China, they have problems because they're so sure of themselves and arrogant culturally that they can't adjust. And so you see, you know, Nestle doesn't do well in China. You see Walmart doesn't do well in China. Google doesn't do well in China. It's because they're so successful in their home markets and elsewhere in the world that they think China will become like them rather than adjusting for China. Again, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You want to keep your core brand DNA, but you have to cater it enough, make it relevant enough for the local markets. Yeah, I was going to say, we see that a lot in Southeast Asia as well. And you know, one of the things that I spent a lot of time talking about over the last five or so years was that if you, you, know, you can either come in and build a company from scratch or you can buy a company that already exists. The biggest problem is giving the team that you put on the ground the autonomy to understand what that local market is, right? China is this one, it's, it is a big market and it's relatively uniform, although I think you may make the case that in different pockets of China, there are different norms. But in Southeast Asia, it's that way on steroids in the sense that what happens in Bangkok is very different than what happens in Ho Chi Minh and different than what happens in Manila and across the board. Yeah, when you talk to most Americans, they don't get that. They just lump it together as Southeast Asia or South Asia. It's sure. kind of, I mean, even diplomats don't get it. I mean, like, part of this book was to say, you know, American diplomats still, for some reason, think that China and Vietnam are close because they're both communist countries. Right. Even though, if you look, ideologically, they've, they've been fighting for a thousand years. You know, and <laughs> right. a, a lot of street names in Vietnam are named after martyrs who fought against the evil Chinese during the imperial time. So there's a lot of distrust between America and China, but, uh, sorry, between China and Vietnam, but you still don't get that from a lot of foreign policy guys in Washington, D.C., which just really shocks me how backward thinking they are. Yeah, and um, so Amazon, you saw, with great fanfare, moved into Singapore, I believe, at the beginning of the fall. I'm going to get it wrong. It was September, maybe October. I can't remember when. And I do wonder, you know, they set up Amazon Prime and they started competing with a lot of the e-commerce companies here. I wonder if they've learned anything from the experience that they had in China, which was very you know, poorly received, and the results were very poor, as you mentioned, along with eBay. I wonder if they've learned anything along the way, which is going to change the way they approach entering this region. And I'm also really curious. I tend to doubt it. I, I don't doubt think they're too. a well-run company. Wow. I mean, when they, whenever they go out abroad, they make mistakes. I'm just sort of mad at Amazon right now because my book is out of stock. It came out this week and it went out of stock in the first day or two. So their little algorithms uh, when to reorder books were way, way off. 
Um, so they were. <laughs> but they've got people a... talk about them in a great way. But you can't buy my book right now and receive it in 24 hours like you should be able to. You have to wait a week or two. Yeah, I mean, and we can spend a lot of time if you want to talking about how Amazon has just completely taken over the publishing industry in the United States. I mean, what they've done there has been terrible. Interestingly enough, Apple was sued for collusion because of what was it iBooks back in the day it, it made no sense to me you know Amazon does some really interesting things and particularly after buying Audible I believe is the name of the company so now they have the audiobooks yeah. as well it's just what they've done in that space is terrible but I think you're right I don't think you know from a I think Amazon's actually a very well-run super amazing domestic American company but in I don't think they've actually been very successful going out there and I think it gets back to that concept that I talked about at the beginning is they don't have any visibility on who the right people are to run those businesses in the in whatever region they choose to enter. But more than that, they don't let them run autonomously and understand what the local culture demands from that type of business, right? Yeah, their China heads are always, you know, changing. And it's always someone who's never operated here. <laughs> and if that's the case, it's too hard. I think they just sold their cloud business in China. Um, when it comes to publishing, for instance... Um, you know, with my previous books, is my publisher was in charge of getting stock to Amazon. Now I believe, at least this is what my publisher says, is that Amazon does print on demand. So they're in charge of printing. So if the book is out of stock like it is now, there's nothing my publisher can do. It's 100% on Amazon to figure out how to print and get the book into warehouses and then out to people fast enough. And they haven't been able to do that. They also have had real problems getting Kindle books up in November and December because so many books come out. So if you look, a lot of books that just came out in the last month or two, they have physical versions, but they don't have Kindle versions. So it's, it's you know, they're this dominant force that over 50% of sales for books in the U.S. come through Amazon, but authors, publishers are really at their mercy in order to get physical and digital books out on time. Um, and it's a real struggle that a, some of my friends and I have faced in the last six months as we have new books coming out. So th that's interesting to me as well. So do you get your books translated? And if you do, do you, would you want them to be circulated, published, and then sold in China as well? Because the things you're the things you're saying in the book, even in your final book, were slightly controversial, but they're still not negative on what's happening in China, right? Like the end of cheap China is a compliment. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, the end of cheap China was banned in China, and there was no Chinese version. Um, there was a Taiwanese version, but no mainland one. And of copycat China was well-received by the government, and there was a Chinese version. Um, it actually, you know, I gave a speech at SASEC, which is the, the political apparatus that sits above state-owned enterprises. Right. And I keynoted an event earlier this year to their senior executives or cadres of 102 largest SOEs, and they passed my book out. When my book was launched in China, the head of the party school in Shanghai was the moderator or the, you know, introduced me to the crowd. So the government really supported end of copycat China. Um, this current book, I don't think, is going to be approved, frankly. It's too political. Um, it's not criticizing the government, but right. it's not supporting the government. It's basically saying China's using economic carrots and sticks to gain power. You know, I think it's pretty straight. It's objective. But it's probably not something that the government is going to want to be published on the mainland. Interesting, because it's really no different than what <clears throat> sort of outward-looking governments have done, whether they were, you know, European in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and American in the middle 1900, middle to late 1900s, have been doing forever, right? 
It's really no different than that. It's very similar. The, the main difference, I say, are two things. One is China's using economic carrots and sticks rather than military threats. Right. You know, the Americans are very good at putting up military bases everywhere right, right, and right. threatening people with regime chain. Yeah. China just says, we're not going to replace you. We're not going to you know, take out Gaddafi in Libya. We're not going to take out you know, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. We're just going to cut off all trade with you. But so I think that's a smart, you know, more peaceful way of doing things. But one of the controversial aspects, as I say, China doesn't really want to be allies with anybody. Um, China would rather um, cajole, punish, scare, you know, um, flatter countries on an ongoing basis. So they never want to have an American-Canadian type relationship. They would rather have a relationship that's constantly in flux, constantly struggling. Interesting. Hmm. So do you do, it's just interesting politically because we haven't seen a lot of that, right? Even, even the Japanese, when they were being expansive, were trying to, you know, get coalitions in places. Obviously the Europeans did that forever, not so well. And the Americans tried to do it, whether it was with NATO or with NAFTA and, and even TPP when that was a possibility. But it's interesting to me that you're saying that the Chinese themselves are actually not trying to have allies anywhere, but just trying to kind of control everything themselves, which to a certain extent, I guess is okay if you look at the way they've run their country. Like my first time in China was at the beginning of 1991, and I had never been there before, obviously, and didn't really know that much about China except what I'd read in the papers. And you know, one of the guys that I traveled with had studied at Nanjing University, so you can imagine, you know, and that had been previous to us arriving there. So that was in the late 80s. And one of the things he said was, you know, for China to catch up to the rest of the world requires a lot of very sophisticated and complex planning. And the speed at which they've done that has been nothing short of amazing in my mind. And I've been paying attention to it in that context forever. I'm curious what you think now, right? So now that China's caught up, that it's no longer just cheap goods, that people are well-educated, that they're getting wealthy, and that they're starting to innovate. Like, where do you think it goes from here? We can we see them expanding, like you said, into Southeast Asia. I'm really fascinated by what's going on in Africa, but like, what do you think the next five years are bringing? Well, I think that's why the government is creating initiatives like One Belt, One Road. And that's actually, you know, the sec- the third chapter of my book is it's talking about they're trying to raise $1 trillion of investment across dozens of countries and continents around the world, you know, from South Africa, you know, to South America, to Africa, to Southeast Asia. And they're dangling this economic carrot, you know, and this is a way that regimes can stay in power because they attract enough Chinese money. They get enough job creation to placate domestic forces. The elites in those markets especially make a ton of money um, from the Chinese investment. And then so the whole country becomes more supportive of China. And what you're starting to see is China's pulling into its economic orbit more countries that are moving away from the United States. Mm. China's filling in this power vacuum from Trump who's looking more at domestic American issues. And frankly, it's not just Trump. It's also under Obama, because I think China viewed Obama or President Obama as a pushover. And so they were filling up over the last 10, 11 years this power vacuum and saying, guys, come closer to us. And you see it's worked. It's worked for like the, the current president of Malaysia. He was tottering um, with his 
corruption scandal, but the Chinese came in with billions and billions of dollars investments. Malaysia saw over a 5% GDP growth increase earlier this year in a previous quarter. So now the president is in a pretty strong position, and the elites there are pretty happy. So China's going to be buying their way um, in the future globally um, and looking, I think, to divide and conquer in alliances like NATO or in ASEAN. You know, they always get Cambodia and Laos to be their big supporters. They always get Hungary or Greece to be their big supporters um, because they want countries to go against the grain in a divide and conquer rather than building up new coalitions unless it's pure economic ones. Can you talk, So, and I think that's fascinating, right? So what's going to happen geopolitically over the next five to ten years is going to be really interesting to watch and, and probably unprecedented, right, because because of the speed Right. I mean, obviously, strategically, the, the globe is always changing, but the speed with which it's changing today is maybe more interesting and maybe faster than it's ever changed, just because we're all so interconnected and because the speed with which communications can happen as well. Can you talk a little bit in more detail, maybe just dig a little bit deeper for people that don't know what One Belt, One Road means? Well, One Belt, One Road is an initiative by China to raise $1 trillion from public and private coffers where they're investing, you know, say $55 billion worth of deals in Pakistan to billions of dollars in Myanmar. And a lot of it is infrastructure. So it's creating the roads, the airports, the tunnels, the dams in order to fuel infrastructure development in these regions. But then their idea is to bring in the private money. And so have the private entrepreneurs then, from China especially, be able to operate in all of these different regions and find new avenues from growth. Because it's not sustainable to have the 10% annual growth in China anymore. So China's looking for new markets for SOEs and the private Chinese companies to invest and make money. But to me, it's not just money. Again, it's also about political influence. Because if you're bringing in $55 billion worth of deals into Pakistan, do you think the Pakistanis are going to listen to China or are they going to listen to the Americans who've been attacking them, you know, um, at least verbally for the last 20 years for their perceived closeness to the Taliban? Yeah, I mean, I think you win, not not to go back to the Vietnam War, but I think you win a lot of hearts and minds when you start fixing the roads, fixing the tunnels, and building better airports for people. And in a way, that's wealth creating throughout wherever you're doing that, right? Because that type of infrastructure is always not just going to create jobs, but it's going to create forward opportunity as well. So it's an interesting strategy from yeah, a political smart. standpoint. Yeah, it's really smart because you don't kill anybody they also don't to do lecture. it. They also don't lecture like the Americans do about different types of political systems. Um, And so now that the world seems to be switching um, away from democratic countries more towards despots, you have a lot of unsavory regimes that like to be supported economically and like not to be criticized by the Chinese. They get annoyed when American presidents come and criticize them for human rights issues or for the lack of a vote. The Chinese don't do that. Yeah, I mean, I guess as long as they can invest their money and get some kind of, like you said, political return or even economic return for their companies, I guess they're happy. They're pragmatic. They're not run by ideology in the same way that the Americans are. They don't tout, you know, democracy as a religion of sorts. I view democracy as very similar, and the crusade for democracy is very similar to various religious things in the future. Yeah, I think it's an interesting um, view on how people, like you said, in countries outside the United States do not want to be lectured about, you know, local customs and, 
you know, you can say human rights, but that's something that actually we've invented as Americans <laughs> to talk about, you know, socioeconomic issues and problems that exist in other countries, right? So fair enough. Yep. Do you want to talk at all about the greater Bay region, how it's kind of been renamed from sort of the Pearl River Delta and what's happening there in the context of all of the electronics companies and all the supply chain in the mobile space? That sort of based in Shenzhen, but the connectivity that's happening in all the cities that are around there? That whole area has been shocking. I mean, it's really been amazing. Even me, you know, who's been so bullish on the government, so bullish on the tech ecosystem, has been taken by surprise at how fast that area has developed. I mean, it went from, you know, pure manufacturing to companies like Huawei, like DJI, that are some of the most innovative in the world. If you look at it, Huawei actually patents more to Apple than Apple patents to Huawei in the telecom sector. Um, There's this incredible ecosystem down there. Um, A lot of entrepreneurs are setting up you know, it, it, it's uh, it's pretty cool to see what's happening there. Um, I'm not an expert on it specifically. Uh, I'm going to be visiting there next week, actually, to look around and see some of the new things. But I haven't been there in a couple months, and so I say I haven't been there in a few months. And it's probably completely different than it would have been a few there, months ago, right? I feel like I've missed out on things. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we've, we've. That's why I say I'm not an expert on the area. <laughs> but this is a place where. You know, just again, based on all the work that you've done, based on the books that you've written and all the research that you do and based on the business that you run, you know, the China Market Research Group, all the stuff that you've learned over time, I think can easily be applied um, into what's going on in the greater Bay region. You go down there, you do a whole bunch of research, you get the connectivity there. I think there's a ton to learn about, you know, like you said, all of the innovation that's taking place there. And it gets back to something, you know, we mentioned a few minutes ago, it's just the speed with which things are changing is unprecedented. The key is the ecosystem. And what I mean by that is you now have guys and girls who made their money at Tencent. They've left Tencent and they're now either angel investors or they're starting their second companies. And that's what's exciting because you didn't have that core of mainland Chinese talent 10 years ago. No, you didn't. Um, You know, 10, 15 years ago, all the venture capitalists were Americans who were parachuting in here. They didn't speak the language. They didn't have connections. The early Chinese entrepreneurs, you know, at Sina and Soho made so much money, they didn't want to become venture capitalists. Right. They just stayed at their companies. But you're now seeing that guy who is a senior vice president. He might have pulled out 20 million U.S. dollars, and he's now seeding companies down in southern China. In China. That's kind of what's exciting right now. Um, you know, and you see a lot of the tech founders now, this is their second go around. Yep. This is their third go around. Um, what is it? The, the CEO of Mobike used to be the Uber head or GM or something like that. So, you know, they, they have experience for 10, 15 years and now they're on to newer, better things. And it's really being concentrated, you know, around southern China, Beijing, and to some extent, Hangzhou. Uh, but it's really, I think, being led by the former 10 cent guys. They tend to be the best trained, easiest to work with. And are you connected at all to this sort of venture capital world? So do you, you know, do you look at China Accelerator, the SOSV team, the hacks, the mocks and all those things? Or is it something that you're going to start paying more attention to as they just start to get so, you know, powerful and so ubiquitous? I'm just curious if that's a space you play in at all. I mean, before I started CMR, I used to be in venture capital. So I was chief of research of inter-Asia venture capital, venture management, which was actually Asia's first VC firm. And I was in charge of IT investments. 
Um, so that was 13, 14 years ago. Um, you know, so I do get involved a little bit in that. A lot of our clients now, like we work with Warburg Pincus doing their tech due diligence. So we do spend a lot of time on the venture capital private equity tech side. Um, I don't do too much with a lot of the accelerators, which I think are great, but they tend to be geared more towards foreign investors and foreign started companies. And again, I think it's pretty tough to be an internet player here started by a foreigner or even angel invested in by a foreigner. Um, you know, it's much better to, the, the best companies tend to focus more on raising money from the Chinese players. And then they might take foreign money, you know, in the 50, 100 million dollar rounds. But at least in that, you know, burgeoning angel stage, it's still very closed off to foreigners. Yeah, I, I, like you, like we said earlier, I do think that the Chinese market, and and fair enough, right? It's going to end up being domestic. It's so vast, and you know the GDP per capita growth potential there is still so high. The growth itself may slow; it will slow for sure over time, but the growth is going to happen because there's still this massive movement. I'm I'm guessing from, you know. I don't want to say suburbs, but from the countryside into big cities, right? China does have more cities with like 15 or 20 million people in it than any other place in the world, and I don't think that's going to change soon. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well. And I don't think it's going to get less domestic-focused, actually, from that perspective. Sure, they'll come into Southeast Asia, they'll invest in Africa as well, but I think the ability for foreigners to go in there and, like you said, build big companies, I don't think it's going to change that much. It's tough. It's tough, frankly. Yeah. Look, I think that's why I don't get too involved with the angel guys. Yeah, fair enough. Even though they're really smart and great people. No, they are. And uh, as you may or may not know, like we're very involved in what's going on in the angel investing community, also in you know helping companies raise money and pitch and stuff like that. It's something that's very interesting to to me. But I watch China. um, I don't feel like I have an edge there, right? So unlike you, I haven't lived there for the past twenty years. I'm still at the point where. um, Like I feel like I'm way ahead of where the rest of the Western world is, only because I live, you know in approximate terms to China, but I still think that there is a massive opportunity there. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that is. It is huge. I mean, I feel like I grew up with the guys. You know, a lot of the top tech startups and I were friends when they were just starting, and stupidly I didn't invest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and they grew and they got richer and richer over the last 20 years, and I watched them and wrote about them and have dinner with them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, you know, I've got, you know, 10, 15 friends who, you know, have become billionaires in just the last 10 years in the tech space. Yep. Look, I don't think the opportunity is over. Um, like I said, the speed is may slow down a little bit, but uh, I don't think it's going to go away. Look, I think this is the perfect place. I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think this is the perfect place to um, to stop. I think this has been a really amazing conversation. If there's anything else you want to talk about um, in the context of your book, The War for China's Wallet, um, please let me know what it is, and you can tell people how they can get that. That would be great. And also how they can get in touch with you, you know, what your Twitter handle is, where, where people can find you. That would be fabulous. Well, it's wonderful having a conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, you can get my book, The War for China's Wallet, on Amazon or in bookstores globally starting in December. Um, and you can always follow me on Twitter, which is just Sean Ryan. But I rarely use Twitter. I'm much more active on LinkedIn. So if you find me, I'll accept an invite. Um, Yeah, I find LinkedIn is the best for business. Thanks so much, Michael. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.